time before summer break. And they're off. They're off to the races. Praise God. For the rest of you, if you will, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. We don't do this very often, but if you would today, will you stand for the reading of the Word? Or not, it's optional, I guess. We're going to begin in in verse 1 this morning. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the gospel, rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. You may be seated this morning. What The title of the message today is Twisting Traditions. And the commandments and the traditions were at odds with one another within this text. The truth of the story, the, the gist of what we're seeing take place in here is that worship must not become twisted or it becomes tainted. If you remember, before we ever even got into the Gospel of Mark and began our walk through this, through the good news, through this story, if you remember, there was a sermon on two sons of Aaron named Nadab and Abihu who brought fire in before God and they were consumed by fire. That's what twisted worship is. It's false fire. It's strange fire. Worship should never become something that's about us. It should always be about Him. It's not about making us feel good. It's about worshiping the Father. And we so easily twist and contort worship to be about anything except who it was meant to be about. But the fact is, God does not accept twisted worship. Tradition, for the sake of tradition, is strange fire. Tradition that binds us up and does not lead us to the freedom that we are offered within Christ is twisted tradition. It's twisted worship. And if you're taking notes and you're you're trying to follow along with this series, God does not accept twisted worship. I'll say that again. God does not accept twisted worship. 
Now, in the context of Matthew, we're now entering into the last year of Jesus' ministry, of his earthly ministry. Much of what he has done up until this point, when it comes to the Jewish, the, sorry, the Jewish purity regulations, he's challenged the way they ought to be viewed. He's pushed back against the Pharisees and the, the scribes and the religious leaders. One example we saw in chapter 5, the woman who was healed with the issue of blood. One of the things we may receive from that encounter is that the pure should not fear the impure. The righteous, the holy, have no reason to fear the unrighteous or the unholy. Instead, what we are to do, if we are indeed made righteous, is to restore and bring healing to that which, which tradition would tell us is unclean. Now for the first century Jewish man or woman in Jesus' day, Purity was a matter of great importance. In fact, some Jewish martyrs before the time of Christ had lost their lives because they took a strong stand and would not eat pork. They were put to death. They were very legalistic is the word we would use. The belief behind this legalism was that their obedience to God's law would then prompt God Himself to come down and partner alongside Israel and work alongside Israel so that any kingdom, any dictator, any nation that would be foolish enough to rise up against Israel would then be overthrown by God Himself. And if you remember in this era, what's what's Israel? They're occupied by Rome, by another nation. So they're very zealous for the law. They're very zealous for this legalistic thing. And in in fact, it had gotten to the point that Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they had begun to add tradition to the Scripture. And in fact, they were adding these things in a way that it wasn't just to show your loyalty to God, but to Israel itself. Today we might call that nationalism. You've heard that word used quite a bit. Now believe me, I I believe I'm a patriot, I'm an American, but I'm a Christian first. Before I'm belonging to a political party or, or any of that sort of thing, I belong to the kingdom of Christ. Amen? And you've all heard me say this, if if politics are your God, if politics is your idol, you're going to live a very miserable life because men are at the center. Men and, and human women are at the center of your worship. They're at the center of your being. But if you find yourself in Christ and Christ alone, that's the only thing that can save you from eternal hell. The Pharisees had replaced the true worship that the law required and the true markings of a heart that was searching after God naturally, the fruit that that would come from that relationship. They'd replaced that with all these other things. They'd added twisted traditions that were intended to box the people in, if you will. Their cages within the cages of the law. So we have to ask then, well, well, then what is true worship? If God doesn't accept twisted worship, what does real worship look like? And simply put, it's the way we show our reverence towards God and to God alone. In fact, the Greek word Jesus uses here in, in verse 7, he's quoting Isaiah from the Old Testament, but the Greek word that he uses is sabontai, and it means to show reverence for 
But if you peel back that onion and you go back to Isaiah, the Hebrew word is the word yachreh. And it means to be afraid or fearful of. In other words, worship is the awe that we show in our reverence for Him, of His, of his power, of His majesty, of His glory, of His love, His compassion, but also His wrath and His justice. And we demonstrate this awe in how we live for Him. Many of you have heard me say this throughout the course of this series through the Gospel of Mark. Our life imitates what we truly believe about Him. Your life imitates your theology, but our theology comes out in our worship. Our theology comes out in how we worship Him, how we praise Him, how we talk about Him. And if we don't talk about Him, And this comes to a head today in our text, in this dialogue between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus quoted Isaiah, who prophesied about this very thing and and saw this thing happening within his own day. And the, the gist of the message, simply put, is God will not accept twisted worship. Worship done to the wrong God the right way is just as disgusting to the Father as as worship that is done to the right God the wrong way. It's twisted. It's tainted. It's strange fire. If it's twisted by tradition or legalism or something else, it's twisted by men who are set on appeasing themselves and not appeasing Father God. God does not accept our twisted worship. And tradition, for the sake of tradition, it quickly can become slavery It can become selfish until finally it becomes savage. And so if you're taking notes, that's the easy way to remember that as we unpack that this morning. Tradition can become slavery. Jesus said, now, when the Pharisees, sorry, Mark writes, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, I want to, this isn't in my notes, but I want to make sure I clarify this. The Pharisees are local Pharisees. Okay, they're the guys from the synagogue in Capernaum. And they've called in reinforcements. Some translations make it sound like the Pharisees and the scribes come down, but really they have called in backup. All right, They've asked for help from Jerusalem because they can't handle Jesus by themselves, these Pharisees. And Jesus has worked his way back. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, he was in Gennesaret and he'd been healing people in the marketplaces and so on. And now he's back in Capernaum. He's back to his home base. He's found his way there. And, and John's gospel even tells us this in John 7. It says that he would not go back to Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him there. And so he's worked his way back home where it's a little safer. And Mark gives us this insight into what's going on there. The Pharisees call for backup. The scribes have come from Jerusalem and they're, they're watching him and they're watching the disciples as close as possible. They're, they're analyzing every little thing they do, every little thing he says. It's not that they notice the disciples' hands are dirty, by the way. Look at the text. When they go to eat, it's not that they're dirty, it's that they're unwashed. There's a difference. They're not following the protocol. This is more than just washing their hands. There is ceremony that has to be done here, Jesus. There's ceremony that has to be followed, performed, purification that must be completed. 
before some before you're allowed to feed yourself. Their hands had to be cleansed in order to separate the Jewish man from any sort of defilement. Now, if you've been paying attention throughout this series, you know for Jesus, this is the same argument, different day, right? We've seen this earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Back in chapter 2, the Pharisees had come down from Jerusalem and they were upset with the way Jesus and his disciples treated the Sabbath, the way they didn't fast, and all of that. These Pharisees, by the way, they're not concerned with the disciples' hygiene. This process has nothing to do with, with cleanliness as we would describe it today, they're concerned with performance. And they are there with one goal in mind. These Pharisees have asked these scribes to come along with one purpose. They want to trap Jesus. You remember they were pretty upset when he healed somebody on the Sabbath, and, and we really haven't heard much about them in the meantime because they've been off plotting with the Herodians. They've been off plotting with the, the Greek Jews, and, and they're trying to figure out a way to get back to him. If you remember Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And this is their way of taking a shot at him publicly now. They want to discredit him. Their mindset is likely if, if we can make him lose credibility publicly, if we can hurt his public image, then he'll be less of a threat and we won't have to do anything to him physically. Or the other side of that coin, if we can discredit him and make people think he's a fraud, nobody will care when we kill him. Right? So you see their, their plot and their plans are starting to take place. The true light begins to shine and the true fight has begun. Now, what was taking place earlier was likely they were just kind of testing him out. And even now, they're probably still testing him out. They're trying to find his weaknesses, his vulnerabilities, his hells. Good boxers do this, by the way. If you've ever watched a boxing match, if you've ever got into to fights, you notice the first few rounds between two people who are truly equally matched, they'll, they'll, they'll just spar with one another. They're testing out their opponent. How much? What's his reach? How far can he punch? How powerful is he? What's his endurance level? How does he react if I hit him this way? How does he react if I hit him in the stomach or the, the body shot? What's his weaknesses? It's what you do in a fight. You don't just go in and think you're going to throw a haymaker and win the whole thing. Gamblers do the same thing. Some of you might remember the TV show Maverick, right? Anybody here remember that show? A few of you, Okay. I wasn't old enough to remember that show, but I remember the Mel Gibson movie. And if you remember, he comes in and he tells the, the people at the table in that movie, he says, I never cheat, I seldom bluff, and if you let me play with you, I would promise to lose for one hour. And he loses. He loses for one hour. They take almost all of his money. But when that hour is up, he gets it back. And he begins to beat them. And they get pretty upset about this. And he says, what do you think I was doing for that hour? I was learning your tells. The way you twirl your hair when you have a good hand or the way you scratch your chin when you're ready to fold, but you, you think you can bluff your way out of it. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're, they're looking for Jesus' tells. They want to feel him out, see what they can learn so they can match wits with him. Well, they've tried matching wits with him and that didn't work, right? He sent them off running to the Herodians. 
But now the bell rings again and the deck is shuffled. And here they are and they watch him and they watch his disciples. And they're very concentrated on what they're doing or what they're not doing. They want, they want to really find out where his loyalties lie. And they're definitely not really, at this point, they're not, they're not wanting to validate him, but they want to validate themselves. They want to validate their mission, their hatred of him. And so Mark tells us, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Well, this is how that ceremony would go. They would go over what we would probably call like a tub or a bigger bowl, and they would hold their hands like this with their fingers pointed upwards, and someone else would pour a jar of water over their hands, and the water would drain off at the wrists. And then they would turn their hands upside down with the fingers pointing downward, and they'd have someone pour water over them again, and then they would put their hands together. Now you might be sitting there saying, well, what about soap? What about it? This has nothing to do with cleanliness. This doesn't have anything to do with washing. This is just ceremony. That's all it is. That's all they care about. It's ceremony for the sake of ceremony, tradition for the sake of tradition. The tradition of the elders, the, it was extra biblical. It was something that's not found in Scripture. They had supplanted Scripture itself as the highest religious authority in all of Judaism. Now keep in mind, this tradition has only come along since the time of the Babylonian exile. When they returned from being kicked out of their country, God took them into exile. And and they come along and they they look at the, the Scriptures and they come up with this. Now the Hebrew Scriptures do talk about washing one's hands before eating, but it, it applied to the priests. And they were required to do so by Levitical law. In fact, Leviticus 22 tells us, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he's bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean. And afterward, he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. Now Mark makes note of this within within verses 3 and 4 for our benefit, for the Gentile reader's benefit. He wants us to understand why they're so upset. Because without understanding this, the image you might get, if you, if you just hear the Pharisees say, why don't, your, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? You might think, man, Peter and, and James and John, they just go to the, the dinner plate like it's a trough and hum, nom, 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 right? That's the image that you might get. So Mark, make sure we understand that's not what's going on here. There's ceremony that has to be taking place. The Pharisees don't care about if they're eating or not. They care about whether or not they're following the tradition. In fact, the actual Greek reads, unless they wash their hands with a fist. That's Mark's very subtle way of saying they're not washing to get clean. Because you can't wash. What parts of your hands touches your food? The insides, right? So if you keep a fist, that's not going to get clean. So that's what Mark is saying. This is all about ceremony. It's all about the tradition. The practice is tedious, it's symbolic, and the Pharisees expect it of anybody who claims to be a teacher or someone who's preparing to be a preacher of the law or any religious-minded person. But there's no requirement of it. There's nothing in the law that says you should do that. Mark goes on, verse 4, When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Well, here's something. Where did Jesus just come from? 
Remember back in chapter 6, what he was doing? Wherever he came in villages, cities, or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces. And they would implore him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, as many as touched, touched it were made well. The mentality is that what the Pharisees are trying to say here is, when we do what you do, we wash. Fact is, they do not do what Jesus does. They don't heal the sick. They certainly don't teach the poor. And Jesus will expose this. Jesus will shine a light on them for this. That they are so enslaved by their own traditions. They're so enamored by their own legalistic ideals. What they want Scripture to be about versus what it's actually about. They're missing the point entirely. When they come back from the marketplace, by the way, their type of washing is different from what we saw in verse 3. In English, it's wash. It's the same thing. But in the Greek, in verse 3, it's the Greek word nipsontai, which means just to wash. But in verse 4, it means something else. It means, it's actually the Greek word, some of you might know it, baptizo. They submerge themselves. They bathe themselves. They purify themselves entirely. In fact, the, the tense of the word is baptisenti. They purify themselves entirely, just in case. Why do they do this? They're not required to. There are types of cleansing to do whenever someone touches an unclean thing. Like if you touch a dead carcass, for example, Le- uh, Leviticus 11.24, by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until evening. And they're required to wash. But there are also various other things that would make someone unclean if they were to touch somebody who was unclean. And we're not going to go into all of them today. But the only way, suffice it to say, if, if the only way you would know you became unclean is if you touched someone who might be unclean and they told you that they were unclean. But you wouldn't know it unless they said something. In other words, it wouldn't matter, right? The idea is what the Pharisees are doing here, what they are saying is that ordinary people, the not religious elite, were so unclean they have to continually separate themselves from them, continually cleanse themselves from them because the stench or the uncleanness of others might have gotten on them. The 19th century theologian John Brodus, he wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Mark and this is what he says about this section. But in the marketplace, one might easily chance to come in contact with a person or thing that was, not, that was ceremonially unclean. So upon returning from the marketplace, they were not content with the ordinary washing, but would, be, would before eating, wash, bathe themselves, literally baptize themselves. No careful housewife among us would take more pains in cleansing persons or things connected with yellow fever or smallpox than they took with persons or things that had become ceremonially unclean. In other words, nobody in our day and age would take such care to clean a a disease that might kill you the, the way the Pharisees would clean themselves, keep the stench of people away from them. You see how they viewed everybody else now? You see what they understood the common man to be about? If you remember the name Pharisee means separate one or separated ones. And maybe now, maybe, maybe now we, we finally start to grasp 
Why it's so powerful that Jesus, when he heals the leper, does so with a touch. Why it matters so much that that people feel they can come up and just touch the fringe, the hem of his garment, and they'll be made whole. That Jesus welcomes the children to come to him. He doesn't care what they're like. He doesn't care that they're unclean because he knows he's pure. He knows he's holy. He knows he's the cleanest thing that ever existed in all of humanity. And he says, you come to me and I'll make you right. And the Pharisees feared that. Jesus doesn't mind the crowd. They go and wash the smell of the crowd off of them. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I smell like my sheep. See, when Jesus came along, the traditions of the Pharisees and the scribes, they'd been nice little cages for the people. But what Jesus has exposed is now those traditions are cages for the Pharisees and the scribes. They hated him for that. Because he's exposed their legalism. It wasn't worship of God, it was worship of themselves. Look how much better we are because we we do this washing. You know, when the wickedness of our hearts is exposed, we tend to lash out. We get angry, we get upset because our hearts have been exposed and we hate those who shine that light. It was twisted worship. This has all been a lie that they told themselves that if they followed the the ritual, then the relationship would come. To the point they are missing the relationship when it is staring them in the face, standing before them. When he is the one who makes everyone clean, they're still saying, but you're not clean enough. Their hearts were so hard, their skulls had become so thick, and their souls would be lost. At one point, for the record, at one point their intentions might have been good, but the traditions were no longer worship for them. It was slavery over them. And God rejected their twisted worship. And instead, he offers them freedom. And the question becomes, but will we accept it? Tradition can also become selfishness. We read on in verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now Josephus, the historian, tells us that this practice developed over many years after the exile from Babylon. That the Jewish people had had studied the law and they built up these extra traditions around the law. One of the goals of doing that is actually it's a thing called fencing. In other words, they're putting a buffer zone around the law so that people will still follow the law. If they keep these traditions, the Pharisees' mind comes that they'll be able to sleep better at night because they're going to know that they have done all the works they could possibly do to make God move, to bring about their salvation. But that's not what God's about. Many of you have heard this verse before, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is not true for the Pharisee. That is not the case for the scribe. Exodus does give us some insight here because the priests were to wash before making a sacrifice or before coming into the tent of meeting. 
Exodus 30 verse 20 says, when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. But that's, that's performing a sacrifice, not eating supper. So the logical path they must have followed had to be something like this. If, if my hands have to be clean for sacrifices to God, to be in God's presence, then I need to show my zealousness for God by, by keeping as much of me clean prior to even putting something within my own body. And we'll get into that more next week. But the idea was, even if they weren't priests, they could be as holy as one. They could be as good as one. Again, purity is a big deal to the Pharisees. If they want God to do what they want God to do, they have to maintain that level of purity. They have to do the works. They're not satisfied with God alone. They're definitely not satisfied with Christ alone. So they've added extra. By asking Jesus why his disciples aren't doing this, what they're really replying is that as he's the master and they're the disciples, this is his fault. He's not a very good teacher. He's not the great teacher everybody seems to think he is because he's been teaching them wrong. And the implication is that as good teachers, they themselves would teach their disciples, first and foremost, that they need to follow this protocol. They need to follow these traditions. This is what we would teach our disciples, Jesus. <laughs> that was a really bad impersonation of a snooty person, but you get what I'm saying. He said to them, he said, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. But people love to say, oh, Jesus was always so kind. Jesus was all about love, 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 love. Jesus is always just a nice guy, Jesus. Not always. Because sometimes you've got to call it out. You've got to call sin, sin. And that's what he does. He says, you hypocrites. And this, this is going to blow your mind if you're one of those people that you have this idea of a long-haired hippie Jesus. This is going to shatter your, your ideal here. But this isn't the first time he does this. He says in Matthew 23, 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You don't enter yourselves, but you don't allow anyone else to go in either. It's the Greek word hypocrite, it's the Greek word hypocriton, and it's distantly, it's related to the word for actor or a stage player. In this context, what Jesus is saying to them, he's referring to their hardness of heart and the fact that they are just acting. They're not who they say they are. They're not about the kingdom of God. They're not about God himself. They're about themselves. They're trying to go through the motions in order to pass judgment on people who are not as fake as they are. And it always makes me laugh when people say, well, the church is full of hypocrites. Oh, you've got no idea. Have you met their pastor? The hypocrites are the least of the church's problems. The difference between a person who says that and the person who still goes to church in spite of that is the person who goes to that church knows they're a broken mess. If that's true, say amen. Yeah, you're still paying attention. That's awesome. Let's... Remember, saying amen is a, is a valuable part of church tradition. It lets the pastor know you haven't fallen asleep or, or you're not thinking about the potluck after. But You know, we know we're messed up. We know we're sinners. We know we need a Savior. And were it not for God's grace and 
and our belief in his promise through his son, through the cross, we are lost. We're just as lost as they are. I used to say this, and I haven't said it recently, but the only thing that makes a Christian better than those that are around him is the fact he knows he's not better than those who are around him. We just know. We know the score. That's the only difference. It's not enough that Jesus calls them out for hypocrisy, though. How many of you know if you're ever in a heated debate and you begin to call your opponent names, you've lost, unless you have evidence for that, unless you can back that up. So Jesus needs evidence. Name-calling is not going to get him anywhere in this unless he can prove it. If you call out a false teacher or a false prophet and you call them that, you need to be able to explain why and show evidence of that. People may not like that you said it, but Jesus does that. He calls out the false teachers now, here in our text. He does that very thing. He says, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Well, who is their heart focused on if it's not focused on God? Well, the answer would be themselves, right? They're making themselves to appear as something they are not. So the world around them will will react and give them pats on the back and say, oh, you're such a good Pharisee. You're such a good guy. You're so religious-minded. But Jesus has called them out for this before too. In Matthew 6, 5, when he was talking to his disciples, He said, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corner that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. Well, who's the hypocrites? Who are the people who are praying out in the open in the synagogues for everybody to see them? The Pharisees and the scribes. Who else stands up there looking for attention? The Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus goes on, he says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. Again, who does this? The Pharisees, the scribes. And they're not doing this to receive a heavenly award. They want their their kudos, their gratitude, their appreciation now. And Jesus says they got all they're going to get. There's nothing else coming to them. They are spiritual phonies. In our text, Jesus quotes Isaiah 29. I'm going to take just a, a real quick sidestep here for just a moment. If you've gone back in your Bible and you've read Isaiah 29, it likely reads differently. It says, The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. The reason you notice the difference between Isaiah 29.13 and Mark's version of that is because in your Bible, they are taking the original Hebrew and trying to translate that into modern English. What Mark is doing is taking the Septuagint, which is a Greek version of the Old Testament, and he's putting it in his own words, in his own testament, his own gospel translation, and then we're taking his interpretation of the Greek and translating that to English. But the message stays the same. The Pharisees are no different than the people Isaiah was talking about. They are the people he was talking about. They worship with their mouth. They honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from God. Their worship is vain. It's empty. It's fruitless vanity. What's vanity but excessive pride or admiration of their own achievements, their own appearance? And when in doing this, they teach the commandments of men, the traditions that men have passed down as though they are doctrine. Doctrine is from Scripture. 
If you truly understand a verse or a passage, it leads you into a doctrine. People say, I don't like doctrine. I just want to know Jesus. Well, who's Jesus? Well, he's the son of God. That's doctrine, right? So when you get to this biblical truth, it's a doctrine that we hold on to. But these Pharisees and these scribes, they're getting their doctrine and their traditions mixed up. This is not just a a Jewish attitude, by the way. Christians do this even now. We get so used to the traditions and the things that the way things are, the way they have to be, the things we've heard other people say. We don't go back to Scripture and test it. We just accept it at face value and we'll teach it to our kids. We'll teach it to our grandkids. And sooner or later, it, it's not true. But it's, it was something we believe, it's something we taught, but it's not doctrine, it's tradition. Paul warns of this to the Colossian Christians. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Paul warns the young preacher Titus. He tells him when he rebukes his church, he should rebuke them sharply if they fall into this practice, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. You see, what Paul tells us, what he's showing us here, is that we shouldn't be so quick to judge the Pharisees. It's very easy to become one. You see, those traditions and those things make us feel good. They make us feel right, and it becomes even more dangerous when we tag the name worship upon it. When it becomes meology instead of theology, for those of you who come on Wednesday nights. Theos being God, he's the focus of our hearts, he's the focus of our worship, not me. But it becomes too easy, and this is what the Pharisees have become. Jesus goes on in verse 8, he says, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. By the way, these traditions were not even written down. It's all oral tradition. It's what grandpa taught me. And what grandpa taught me now supersedes the word of God. That's what's happened here. It's been passed down by by generation after generation after generation ever since that return from the Babylonian exile. And these men are holding on to it as though it's scripture, as though it's holy writ. Now later it will be written down in the Mishnah. That's how we understand In the second century, that's how we understand what it is. But these were just traditions that people accepted, that they understood. Something that puffed up those who knew about them and tore down those who didn't. One of the keys to being an effective church, by the way, is being conscious of our oral tradition. Being very aware of our own unwritten rules. I know as people have stopped saying amen. If someone comes in, they're a first-time guest at our church, or maybe just someone who hasn't been here in years, and we aren't, if we aren't careful, we begin to develop a culture as a church that says, well, you're not really welcome here because you're not one of us. You don't really know all of our things, all our traditions. You don't really know what we're about, so you, you may not be a good fit here. You know, we joke about that, that little saying, us for and no more in some churches, But the Pharisees prove it's very possible to become that very thing. I said this a couple of weeks ago. We don't have to be like the world. We should not be like the world. 
But we do have to be able to speak to the world if we expect to change the world. We must be aware of selfish worship. We have to be aware of the meology and the songs we sing and the, the me focus in the sermons we preach and the classes we teach. They're little sugary treats that are meant to make us happy but not grow us in Christ, and they are deadly to the church body. Worship should never affirm our sin. Worship is surrendering to a holy God who removes our sin so that we're no longer enslaved by it. The truth is the Pharisees wanted the ritual without the reality. They wanted tradition more than they wanted truth, and they wanted conformity more than they wanted a true cleansing. So be on guard, church. Let this not become us. Selfish worship is twisted worship, and it's not accepted by God. And finally, tradition can become savage. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. The traditions by themselves were not necessarily a bad thing when they started out. I'll say that again. Traditions are not necessarily a bad thing. They can become evil. They can become slavery. They can become selfish or even savage, but they seldom start out that way. The heart behind them is where the problem comes in. We have church traditions even now, believe it or not. Um, More than just what goes on inside a simple service. We have things we do that have no basis in Scripture, really. Nowhere are we told to celebrate Christmas, for example. Nowhere in your Bible will it say to have ham on Easter, right? But but we still get together for a family meal on Easter. We're celebrating the death and resurrection of Christ. And you know where we're supposed to celebrate the death of Christ? In communion. We do that every month. That's the only time there's there's a command to do that, not once a year. You know, there's no command in the Bible. This is going to shock some of you. There's no command in the Bible to tell your kids about Santa Claus or about the Easter Bunny because that's not a real thing, right? But yet we have these traditions within our church. We do these very things. We have programs we do every year. They're a church tradition. Good traditions are okay as long as the heart behind them is constantly to still bring us to Christ. Traditions have this way of reminding us of God's truth and and leading us into that deeper relationship with Him. But that's only if the heart and the mind behind them are coming from a good place. How many of you know sometimes Easter can be a bad thing because it's the only time some people want to come to church? That's the the wrong heart behind that tradition. You should want to come to church every Sunday. That's, That's what the Bible tells us to do. The Apostle Paul, speaking of traditions to the church of Thessalonica, he said, Brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And he warns them, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. The tradition Paul's speaking about is the gospel. It's It's about communion. It's about speaking about the death and resurrection of Christ and the purpose behind those things. Those are the traditions we pass on for sure. If we don't understand those, how can we pass them on? And he makes it clear that this is important in in verse 14 of 2 Thessalonians 2. But the fact remains, traditions aren't necessarily evil, 
but the people who follow them can be. Jesus said they'd rejected the commandment of God in order to establish their tradition. In other words, they had made their ways higher than even God's ways, in a sense, making themselves little gods. He speaks to this in, in John's gospel. But again, he explains even further, and he, Jesus does something. When, when somebody does this, things get serious. He brings the Ten Commandments into it. That's the law of the law, right? If you're, in a, if you're in a debate with another theologian or another Christian about something and you can point to the Ten Commandments, chances are you've got the high ground. You're going to win. And Jesus brings up, he says, Moses said, honor your father and mother. And the Apostle Paul points out in Ephesians 6, that's the first commandment with a promise. And the law clearly states, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And Jesus is quoting Exodus 21, 17. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Both of these commands tell the Hebrew or the Jewish person they must honor their, their parents. And we would agree with this. It's not just Mosaic law, this is moral law. We understand this applies to us as well, that we should honor our father and mother, our grandparents. The law speaks much of honoring one's parents, not just the Ten Commandments. We're to treat our parents with respect, with love, reverence, dignity, and even assist them financially when we're able to and they're in need. The second command Jesus mentions clarifies the first. God takes the way a generation treats the previous generation very serious, by the way. Paul tells Timothy, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. That does not mean you're going to... Timothy was a pastor. We call that the pastoral epistles. Does not mean you're always going to see eye to eye with your pastor. But there should be love done between the two of us and be able to discuss things without us getting angry and hating each other before it's over. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not always the best at this. I, I know that even with my own dad. Doesn't mean I don't love him. Doesn't mean I don't get frustrated with him either. And that's going to happen in relationships. But that these things need to be discussed and talked about and said lovingly to one another. And I'll continue working on that, but we're not here to talk about pastor's imperfections today. We'll move on. Jesus continues in verses 11 and 12. He says, But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban. And then Matthew, in parentheses, he explains what Corban is. He says, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother or mother. The accusation that Jesus is making here is very deep. On the one hand, to the Pharisees, when they saw a man or a woman taking care of their parent, they might encourage them to stop and give that money to the synagogue or to the temple. So any blessing that a parent might receive through their children, whether it was financial, whether it was food, clothing, etc., it would be considered Corban, and that's something sacred, something that's given to God. And if something's deemed Corban, it has to be important and only used for sacred purposes. So Jesus is accusing the Pharisees here of taking this Corban principle and manipulating it and using it to redirect God-given resources from their proper and compassionate uses for their own selfish gain. This makes a mockery, by the way. This makes a mockery of God. 
He is the one who instituted the fifth commandment to begin with. He wrote it with his own finger when he said, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. They are taking that commandment and they are twisting it to their own evil means. The Pharisees are not going to like this accusation, but if you notice, if you read in your text, they never deny that what he said was true. They never try to fight him on that. And for another, if the people get wind of this, if, if it comes out that Jesus, what he said was true, and, and it is true, and their reaction will prove that, well, then there's going to be some parents who are all of a sudden being taken care of, and the priests aren't going to be able to buy their new Ferrari, or their new jet plane, or whatever the first century equivalent to that was. You see, twisted worship is not about glorifying God. It's about satisfying self. Self-gratification, self-appeasement. Real worship is not about you and it's not about me. It's about Him. It's about glorifying God in reverence and in awe. And Jesus concludes this thought by by explaining to the Pharisees what what their twisted worship is doing, what it has done, what it's become. He says, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. The NASB translation says, thereby invalidating the word of God by your tradition. You might hear that and say, God's word is voided? I, it's invalid? I thought God's word does not return void, right? That's what Isaiah says. Uh, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void, but it shall accomplish what I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I sent. How is it possible they're making this void? He's saying it's through their twisted worship. He's saying their twisted traditions are not God's word. They're a perversion of the word. And it's not worship at all. It's not his word at all. They're human creations attempted to deprive the word of God, attempting to deprive the word of God of its authority. It's undermining scripture. It's undermining the law. The tradition that Christ is addressing allowed an individual to call his material possessions Corban and dedicate them to God and the temple. Now, if his son was angry with his parents or his parents were immoral people, he could declare his property Corban to keep them from getting it. But it, And it was a vow that was made before God. And Numbers 30 tells us that you don't break those types of vows. So his possessions couldn't be used for anything other than service to God. But Jesus exposes the facts that the Pharisees are, are canceling out God's command to honor someone's perp, uh, parents their own traditions because they want that money for themselves. In other words, they're likely enticing these people to do this very thing. And that is savage. How dare you take care of your parents? Give more money to the church. You imagine if somebody preached that today? That'd be all over YouTube in no time. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. They're stealing from the elderly. They're stealing from families. God hates that. Proverbs 15.25 says, The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Psalm 146.9 says, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Pharisees aren't going to like that. But that's not all they're up to. 
See, Jesus knows their heart. And he says, but you do many such things. In other words, what he's offering them at this point is, do you want me to make the list? So they're going to keep their mouth shut, right? They're not going to deny what he, what he just said. See, the twisted traditions were not authentic worship, and it was rejected by God because it was evil, because it was savage, because it was something he never commanded to begin with. And church, I'm, I'm going to move to close in just a moment. But this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we have to ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. This is where we pull back and we say, speak to me, Lord. Because Christ died for the Pharisee the same as he died for us. Christ died for the traditionalists as much as he died for anyone. Even in our study of the Pharisees, we have to be very careful to not become a Pharisee in a different colored robe. We can be quick to call someone a Pharisee because we think that means their sin is darker or more wicked than our own. You might say, well, I'm not stealing from my grandma, so I'm doing okay. I'm not as bad as those guys were. But are you honoring her? Are you respectful to her? Are you faithful at your job? Sin is sin. If we're not careful, we begin to think it's, it's a good thing to hate the Pharisees. But in having that mindset, we're minimizing our own sins, whatever they may be. And you'll hear Christian celebrities, and I, I think that phrase is an oxymoron at this point, but you'll hear Christians on TV say, you're a Pharisee because you judge me for my sin. Don't judge me because I sin differently than you. But the truth is, we're just lovingly trying to tell you to repent. There needs to be a change of heart. The difference between a Christian who is, who is judging rightly and the Pharisee is the Pharisee wants to demonstrate their own moral superiority while the Christian brother or sister wants to bring spiritual maturity. In fact, that's what Paul tells us to do. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And elsewhere he says, Him we proclaim warning, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The idea is that when we are bringing about a judgment or we are calling out a sin, if we're rebuking somebody, exhorting someone, challenging someone, the idea is to mature them in Christ. And we may not be perfect ourselves, but the idea is they're going to do that for us as well. We have to be careful not to become the Pharisees ourselves, but continue growing in Christ because he died for your sins as much as he died for those who accused him before Pilate. He died for your sins as much as he died for the Roman soldier who nailed his hands and feet to the wood. He died for your sins and my sins as much as he died for Caiaphas who accused him. Twisted traditions will condemn you. God does not accept twisted worship, but the blood of Christ can redeem you. If you're here and maybe this has hit your heart, I'm just going to challenge you. Find a place to pray this morning. Let the Holy Spirit continue the work that he's begun. Maybe you find yourself locked in a pharisaical box and you're saying, that's me. I have, I have trapped myself with tradition. I've trapped myself with things that are not the word of God. And maybe, maybe you've accused others of legalism and you've, you've painted yourself in a corner. Find time this morning. Find a place at the, at the front. Find a place where you're sitting and just spend a few moments in prayer. Holy Spirit, 
Search my heart. What, have I, what am I doing? Where am I at? And if you will, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to dismiss in a word of prayer. I know we do have a fellowship downstairs. If you do want a fellowship, I would ask you to take it downstairs, not here at the front, not in the sanctuary, so that we can be respectful of those who are praying. Father God, we just ask you this morning, penetrate our hearts. Let your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and we ask you to penetrate our hearts with it. Cut away the sin. Cut Cut away the Pharisee in us. Lord, that we be humble before you, truly humble before you. Not the humility that deserves a reward or expects a pat on the back because that's pride. Father, pride says, I know all of this. Humility says, I need to hear it one more time. Pride says, I've got it all figured out. Humility says, no, I don't. And I need more of Jesus. Pride says, I know where he's going with this. Humility says, let me follow him. Let me see what he has to say. And Lord, I pray for humble hearts this morning that we are all like that. What does your word have to say to us today? Jesus, I pray that we bless you. I pray that we bless you when we are downstairs in our fellowship at the potluck. But Lord, I pray we bless you in our lives as we leave today. In our thoughts, our words, I pray that our life imitates our theology. May we have good theology. May may our theology come out in our worship and we worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.